0: Good morning. Good to see each of you. I hear that sickness is still running pretty wide margin among us. We want to pray for those who aren't able to gather with us this morning uh, as different flus and COVID spread uh, through different households. We want to lift one another up in prayer and continue our, our joint efforts in trying to stay healthy. Open your scriptures to John chapter 1. I don't know about you, but the statistics Lori shared this morning were convicting what people feel and experience from those who are called to reflect and image Jesus Christ. It is easy to slap the law down on something. Probably why Jesus didn't go to the local synagogues to recruit the men who would then lead his movement in the New Testament, but he went and he found sunburnt, sweaty, fish-smelling men who were used to handling nets and were waiting for a Messiah. Not because of their theological training or because whatever process had to happen for you to gain an official role in the local synagogue, they were waiting because they believed and they had hope in him. I thought about the question, have you ever wondered what it would be like to talk face to face with God? Or to bring a situation as we were confronted with this morning to God, how would he respond? What would it be like to watch him live on the earth? Like to literally see him interact with people. To observe what he would value. What's really important. Very interesting. We're reading uh, as men on Thursday mornings through the Gospel of Mark. And this rich young man comes to him and and he's asking and even respects Jesus. He likes Jesus. What do I need to do to gain, to inherit eternal life? Of course, Jesus goes right for his heart like he always does. And he says, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Then you shall have treasure in heaven. And no, he's not teaching a works-based righteousness. He's simply exposing the true idol of that man's heart. And we were laughing a little bit because we made the application that he would have been so welcomed by most churches because he's respectful and he likes Jesus. Oh, and he's wealthy. And we know exactly how he would utilize some of that. In the same chapter, Blind Bartimaeus is rebuked by the disciples of Jesus. Shh! Trying to be religious. Can't you see we're following Jesus on the way to Jerusalem? Jesus says, tell him to come here. And he says, what do you want me to do for you? He says, I'd like to see again. Is that the Jesus you know? Do we read him and... And and actually follow Him and value what He values. See, you'd be able to see how He'd respond to somebody caught in sin. Just open the Gospels. Or how He interacts with established religion. His firmest words were reserved for those who were religious. Not for those who were sinful. Look at John 1.14. As a matter of fact, John begins his account of the Gospel in a way that you're supposed to call to mind the book of Genesis, right? As we as we continue in our series, from creation to new creation, you've got to go back to creation, and Jesus often does. As a matter of fact, Thursday morning again, when Jesus goes to talk about um, the challenges, cultural, contemporary ideas on divorce, He said it wasn't so when God created them. John starts his Gospel, John 1.1, like Genesis starts, but look at verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. He made His tent among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. And I love this description of Jesus. Full of grace and truth. Wouldn't that be refreshing? For a church, every member within a church, to image Jesus like that, being full of grace and full of truth. The grand narrative of God's Word from all 66 books, from the first to the last, is a story of promise. And promises give hope. The story is the expectation or waiting for a promised deliverer who will make all things new. And like we said last week, He's not just going to recreate Eden by itself. Though most of us, we would love to live in the Garden of Eden. And there are places on earth where it is a beautiful tropical paradise and and people take pictures and they hashtag blessed or hashtag thank you God. And we want to try to move into those places as much as we can. But God isn't just preparing for us another Eden. What He is doing is going to far surpass the Garden of Eden. And we long for a person who will restore what was lost, a close and enjoyable and holy relationship with God. And we still, I mean, I find even as a believer, in my heart, I still long for rescue and restoration from this world. Not only from this world, but from the struggles within my own mind and heart and life. Right last week, we said we... We don't even want to live 2021 forever, let alone 2022 and it's just started. How many of us have already been sick? On Monday, we said goodbye to our only grandchild who moved to Ohio. I don't want to live 2022 forever. I long for rescue from this and for something better. That's our hope. So who are we looking for? When we talk about this story of promise, when we talk about having Hope in a rescuer, yes, from the penalty and the presence of sin, but, but, but hope in something even better. Eternal life. Who are we looking for? The promise of Scripture's grand narrative is cent- centered on a particular person. I've had you open up to John. Look at John 5.39. Because it's possible to read and memorize and know the Bible, yet miss Jesus. John 539, Jesus said to the Jewish leaders, to the Jewish people, you diligently study the scriptures, which at that time were the 39 books of the Old Testament. These are the scriptures that testify about me. Right? So he's talking about the Old Testament and the Old Testament is designed, carefully constructed, to point you to a single person. We need to learn to read the Bible through that lens. In Luke chapter 7, don't turn there, um, but the imprisoned John the Baptist asks this. He actually asks it through some of his own disciples. Are you the one, singular? Are you the one who is to come? Wait a minute, I thought John the Baptist was the forerunner, the sort of the second Elijah, right? The man who comes out of the wilderness looking like an old testament prophet, preaching, confronting the religious elites who who were not following Jesus. And now he's in prison and he says, Are you the one? Are you the one who is to come, singular, a promised one, or shall we look for another? The Old Testament pointed these men to a person that's who they were waiting for look at john chapter 1 verse 45 philip found nathaniel and said to him notice his wording we have found him the one and look at what he says of whom moses in the law and also the prophets wrote and now they're going to identify him, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Look at verse 49. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. See, these men knew the Old Testament scriptures. It's all they had. And in light of their, if we, if, if we could say this, in light of their Old Testament theology, they took everything they saw from Genesis chapter 3 on and narrowed it down to this specific individual as the hope of the nations. Look at John one forty one, because the New Testament uses the word Christ more than 500 times, but it doesn't really supply much background to the meaning of the word. The Old Testament supplies the significance of the title, but look at John one hundred forty one. Andrew understood the significance of this title. We have found the what? The Messiah. And here's the parenthetical explanation, which means Christ. The Old Testament word Messiah or the Hebrew Mashiach is the equivalent of the New Testament Christos or Christ. It is a title. And everything in the Old Testament pointed to Jesus as being the anointed one, the Messiah. The Messiah is simply one who has been anointed. The verb actually means to be rubbed or to have something poured upon or to be anointed. It includes being chosen for an office. There were three in the Old Testament, priest, prophet and king. Each of those offices men were anointed to fulfill. They were given authority to exercise that office and they were empowered to function or serve in that office. Turn to Matthew's account of the gospel. Turn to Matthew chapter one because being anointed so in this case there are small m messiahs throughout the old testament king saul not a wonderful king first the first king of israel was anointed being anointed identified a person as being qualified for a certain task it's interesting what the the messiah the anointed capital a is is actually capable of doing. He was chosen to be the Savior of sinners. Look at Matthew 1. And we're going to look at genealogies today, and I know that does not make for an exciting sermon, but there's a reason your Bible is filled with them. And I want you to see how Matthew starts his. Chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So you have a personal name. And of all the other Jesus's that existed, we're talking about Jesus of Nazareth. That's why the disciples will throw that sort of description on it. But Christ now is the title. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Okay, is He qualified for that? Look at what Matthew mentions next. The son of David, kingship, and the son of Abraham, There's that racial line that we're going to go back to Genesis and trace. Look at verse 16, Matthew 1, verse 16. I'll begin reading where it says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Okay, he is called Messiah. By the way, in Matthew's genealogy, every one listed is the son of their father except one distinct person and he is the son of his mother. Okay? He is the son of a human mother but not a human father. Look at verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to... What does it say? To the Christ. Okay, the designation of Messiah. Fourteen generations. Now, he's going to go from genealogy to narrative section. Interestingly, exactly how Genesis is, is, is constructed. And he says this in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, Christ, took place in this way. Now, what was this king who has the right to sit on Israel's throne? What was he anointed for? What kind of work? Well, he fulfills all three offices. We're not going to look at that today. Priest, prophet, and king. But look at verse 21. It's going to explain to you the work of this anointed one. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Turn forward to Acts chapter 4. What we're going to see here is Peter quoting Psalm 2, which is the first Okay, Messianic Psalm in our 150 Psalms. Peter's actually going to tell you an appropriate interpretation of of Acts chapter, of, of Psalm 2 and Acts chapter 4. Look at verse 25. I'll begin reading where it says, Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why, and, and you'll, you'll recognize this if you're familiar with Psalm 2: why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings, verse 26, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his, what's the next word? Anointed, capital A. So Mashiach, a noun capitalized to identify a person. Who does Peter believe the anointed is? Look at verse 27. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. Okay, go forward to Acts chapter 13. Now, Paul, not Peter, but Paul's going to quote Psalm 2, verse 6. And he's going to apply it directly to the resurrection of Jesus. So what you're getting now is a New Testament interpretation of an Old Testament passage. Look at at Acts 13, verse 32. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers... Remember, this this meta-narrative of Scripture is a story of promise. We bring to you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this He has fulfilled to us, their children, how? How? By raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. See, this begins to answer the question, as we talk about moving from creation to creation, who are we looking for? Who's going to architect and design that new creation? Uh, It just brings to mind a passage that we often use at funerals in John chapter 14, where they're sorrowful that Jesus is going away, and He says, don't let your hearts be sorrowful. Well, why? They've walked with Him for three and a half years. They're going to miss their teacher. They're going to miss the fact that they were walking in the shadow of the Son of God. Now He's leaving them. How is He going to comfort them? I go away to what? To prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I wouldn't have told you. And where I am, you will be with me, and I'm going to come back and get you from creation to new creation. See, who are we waiting for? We're waiting for Messiah, or around Christmas time, we call him the Christ child. But he's not simply to be immortalized as an infant or leave the legacy of a good teacher, but to conquer, rule, and reign over a kingdom, because he's a king. We started our discovery of God's redemptive plan where all things started. Genesis chapter 1. I want you to go back there again this morning. Uh, Open your Bibles back to Genesis. Where we started to have clarity on original conditions and purposes. And that's why we started last week with creation and Adam. It's interesting that in Genesis 1, seven times God pronounces his creation as good And one of those times he says, it is very good. Well, what spoiled it? God, because he's a sovereign king and the creator, put two trees in the midst of the garden. And a creature more subtle, more crafty than any other creature that God had made. Remember, he's a created being. Somehow had access to the garden. And it's interesting that Adam and Eve chose to obey a creature that was under their dominion rather than to obey their creator who was over them. Rather than listen to God, they listened to a a creation that they were in rule over. And from that, we learned how the first Adam, after spoiling what was very good, now placed the entire world in need of a last Adam. Remember it's not the second Adam, because there seem to be second Adams along the way. You know, you have Noah, you have Abraham, you have Isaac, you have Jacob, and, and you move to the story, but there is only one last Adam because there is no need for another perfect man after Jesus Christ. First Corinthians fifteen forty-five says this. Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And do you know, here's, here's the beauty and the hope. Through the last Adam, through his obedience, his sinless nature, his perfect sacrifice, he invites us back to close garden fellowship with him. In answer to the question, who are we looking for? It is Messiah, the Christ, God's anointed deliverer, who is God's Son, and His name is Jesus. Sean read this for us this morning in Acts 4. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. The builders. Well, how are they the builders? They were Israel. They're from the line of Jacob. But He has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's who we're looking for. Now, where are we to look for Him? Turn in your Scriptures to Luke 24. We quickly go to the New Testament because we have four Gospels that introduce to us the person and work of Christ. Remember a title. We have one church history that records the initial proclamation and spread of the good news about Christ. We have 21 epistles or letters that explain and expound the nature of Jesus Christ and the implications that His person and work have on us as individuals, but primarily on us as a gathered people of God, which Scripture interestingly calls a new man. And we have one apocryphal book that assures us of the consummation of all the truths of Christ's person and work. Look at Luke 24, verse 25. Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? Remember, the, these two disciples, they're like, oh, haven't you heard? They had no idea they were talking to the one that a few days previous had been hanging on a cross. And He calls them foolish and slow of heart to believe Haven't you read the prophets? Look at verse 27. And beginning with Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning who? What does it say? Himself. Do you see Jesus when you open the book of Genesis? I wonder it said he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, beginning at Moses the things concerning himself. I wonder if one of the first places he went wasn't Genesis three, verse fifteen, where the serpent's head had just been crushed at Calvary. Look at verse forty four. That provides a clue for interpretation. If we read any Old Testament book without seeing Jesus and expounding the Christ, the Messiah, we have missed the point of that book. We're provided an example of this in Acts 8, where there is a man from North Africa. He's in power. He's in a chariot for some reason, had gone to Jerusalem. He's on his way back. In Acts 8, it says there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He's seated in his chariot. He was reading the prophet. Do you remember this? Where was he reading? He had an Old Testament text, which would have been very rare. He was reading out of Isaiah 53. Philip ran to him, heard him reading Isaiah, the prophet, and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? I love his response. How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of the Scripture that he was reading was Isaiah 53. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom? He knew it was about an individual, a specific individual. About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself, is Isaiah talking about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with his scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Look at Genesis 3, verse 15 again. This is God. He speaks to the man. He speaks to the woman. He talks about them, of the consequences of their sin In this case, He is speaking to the serpent. And He says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise His heel. What God is doing is spelling out the ultimate defeat of the serpent. The serpent would, yes, bruise the heel of this particular descendant, but crucifixion was not actually a death blow from which Messiah, Christ, could not recover. And in recovering, it would then be the death blow, the head crushing of the serpent. The seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. And it's interesting because Genesis 3.15 sort of portrays this prophetic struggle between descendants The first struggle we see between offspring happens in Genesis 4. Cain commits fratricide. He killed his own brother. One chapter after the fall in sin is already hideous. Genesis 4-8, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And we already feel the deep need for someone to reconcile us back to God where the first family is broken and one of the first brothers is murdered. And we long for the restoration of a paradise that was lost. Look at Genesis 5. I want you to notice something in Genesis 5. Genesis 5 provides a record of Adam's descendants to Noah. And I want you to notice a repeated phrase. Look at verse 5. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years. Don't you feel young after that? Like everybody in here, Phew, I feel young. Right? He lived for 930 years. And he, I want you to say it out loud, and he what? And he died. But he listened to the lie of a creature that was under his domain rather than the warning of the Creator he should have been worshiping. Look at verse 8. Thus, all the days of Seth we're nine hundred and twelve years, and he what? And he died. Look at verse eleven. And he died. And verse fourteen and seventeen and twenty and twenty-seven and thirty-one. God's word is truth. Genesis two seventeen. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Romans six twenty three says the wages of sin is what? Death. So where's the hope of promise? For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is... I love this, because this is what was lost. Eternal life through who? Jesus. Then there's a title, Christ our Lord. There's a promised one. In Genesis 6-10 to is the record, the narrative of the flood. What is interesting here is it looks like God is uncreating the world he created. But if you actually look at it through the lens of Revelation 21 and 22, he's showing to you a type of new creation. He's actually recreating the world by saving eight people in the ark, which is a type of salvation amidst judgment. And he starts it anew. What's beautiful is Jesus refers back to this in Matthew 24. Let me just read to you verse 37 to 39. Jesus says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man before a recreation, judgment. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. The book of Genesis, I want you to turn back to Genesis chapter 2, as we draw this to a close. The book of Genesis, and I hope this will affect how you read it and understand it, as Jesus went back to Moses and expounded to them the things concerning Himself, From Genesis 3.15, there is the promise of a seed, or your translation may have offspring. The idea is there's this specific line that leads to a particular descendant. Genesis deliberately focuses on that single line of descendants. Matter of fact, Genesis does this. It consists of narrative sections linked together by genealogies. Now, growing up in Sunday school, probably even in our classes, we focus on the story part right and we we We, 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 we can make moral analogies from those stories and and we launch into all kinds of treatment and handling of the text but what genesis is primarily meant to do is between these narrative sections there are these sort of chapter headings or billboards called Tolodoths. that's the hebrew word look at look let me show you the first one look at chapter 2 verse 4 this is the history that's your chapter heading of the heavens and the earth when they were created I'm not going to have you turn to all these, but in one it says, this is the book of the genealogy. Same word. Translated differently. Of Adam. Chapter 6, verse 9. This is the genealogy of Noah. Chapter 10, verse 1. Now this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah. So now we're tracing the seed after he uncreated, recreated the world after the flood. That seed is still alive. From Noah it goes, Where? Chapter 11, verse 10, this is the genealogy of Shem. So we're looking for a Semitic man, right? From the line of Shem is what that means. 11, verse 10, this is the genealogy of Shem. 11, 27, this is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram. 25, verse 12, now this is the genealogy of Ishmael. Interestingly, that... They would include the genealogy of Ishmael because that's where Abraham tried to force the line to go through. But God said no, and he chose who? A son of promise. So unbelievable that Sarah left. 25 verse 19, this is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Chapter 36, verse 1, now this is the genealogy of Esau. Interesting, he's the firstborn, but that's included because God doesn't always follow through with the firstborn. And later on in chapter 37, verse 2, this is the history, the genealogy of Jacob. Tim Chester wrote this. As we read the stories of conflict and tension within the families of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we are not simply reading a family saga We are searching for the promised Deliverer. We are tracing the hand of God as He fulfills His saving promises. The structure of the book of Genesis brings this out. You actually see the doctrine of election working in the histories of the families in Genesis. For example, God chose Shem from among the three sons of Noah. God chose Isaac, not Ishmael. God chose Jacob, not Esau. Paul explicitly states this in his letter to the Galatians, Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Are you ready for this? Christ. It is a story of promise. And you start to see this unfold when in Genesis thirty-two twenty-eight, He says, God says, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob. Deceiver, supplanter, but Israel. There's a promise. Because it's going to go from a family into a nation. And no wonder Jesus told the Samaritan woman at the well, You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the... Jews. How arrogant. How nationalistic. No, that's the fulfillment of the promise. That's there so you can recognize this individual. So how should we respond to this? Acts 3.19-21 Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send the Christ appointed for you Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets long ago. What hope does this provide us? Second Peter 3.13 According to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. There are people here, even in this small gathering, that have hurts they've never put words to. That have a weight of guilt and regret. They don't know where to place it. God has sent you a Prince of Peace. And He is establishing a new kingdom which just doesn't replace Eden, but it far surpasses it. Isaiah 65, 17, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. John saw a taste of that. This will be the last scripture I read this morning in Revelation 21 as we move from creation to new creation because of the hope of a promised deliverer who is also the creator, Colossians 1. John says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. And listen to this. For those of you who are hurting, for those who feel rejection from the church or judgment or condemnation, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And for those of you who are grieving still, the fresh pain of the death of a loved one. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. Why? For the former things have passed away. How? Because of Jesus Christ, our Lord. You will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray.